When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there and welcome to Think the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. I'm also your host, Ryan Key. And it's my birthday, and my name's Nick, and I'm also your host. Hey. It's your birthday! <laughs> Everyone, this is a monumental occasion because Nick Gambarian is officially <laughs> in the club with Adam and I. You're over the fucking hill. I know. The Dead Club. Me and Empire Strikes Back are 40 this year. I mean, you're in good company. Yeah. Yeah, all the good stuff's over 40. Man, (laughs) we took some pre-recording shots out of our Star Wars drinkware to celebrate your birthday. Because we are adults. Exciting stuff, man. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thanks. What's really extra cute is that I said, let's all take shots. And we all just ran off camera and all without any prompt, came back with Star Wars glassware. We totally did. No one said, like, make sure you grab a Star Wars glass. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We're real, uh, real nerds. I love it. Me too. You guys are my favorite nerds. How about of all time? Feels good. Feels good to be nerds, especially with all the other nerds listening. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nerd family. Hey, nerds. Nerd culture. (laughs) All you nerds, wish Nick a happy birthday. Speaking of nerds, and speaking of descending deeper and deeper into the nerd crevasse in which we live, <laughs> this episode is all about deep cuts, a deep den of antiquities episode. But we got some good stuff. We're going to just do like five each. We'll keep it pretty brief, but it's fun stuff that you guys can go check out yourselves. Lots of fun little things I'm sure that you'll have to kind of pause and really look for going sort of like a, a thank the maker Easter egg hunt. Do you think there's a difference between Easter eggs and fan service? Because I feel like people talk about them as two different things. And like Easter eggs are good and fan service is like poo-pooed on. I think it's a fine line. Yeah. I think it's a fine line, but I do think there's a difference. I think to consider something an Easter egg, it's it's like when I'm looking at my list of things I, I went and found, they're all things that you have to like spot as they fly by or yeah. as yeah. they're said. And then they were used or, or turned into something later. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think fan service is like, <laughs> is like 30 Star Destroyers rising from the dust yeah, yeah, in yeah. The Rise of Skywalker. That's what people <laughs> would say. That's fan service. And you know what? I'm here for it. Yeah, I want same. to see hundreds of Star Destroyers rising from the ashes of yeah, the Empire. Badass. Yeah, it's exactly. Badass. But I think there is a difference. I think fan service, when done well, it's just awesome. Uh, like, I don't think it needs a name. It's just awesome. And I think the same can be said for retconning when it's done well. It's just cool, just interesting, just like, oh, damn, wow, exactly. that's, that connects. I agree. It can be smart. I think retcon almost has like a, a, a negative connotation like, oh, they're mm-hmm. just filling shitty plot holes. But actually, I think it's clever screenwriting in a lot of cases. Yeah, because it's not always a plot hole. Sometimes it's just a really rad nugget that a future screenwriter was like, 
that is so cool. I'm going to make something out of that. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, it's a plot hole for sure. Sometimes it's something where there wasn't an answer. And if you're going to take on that challenge as a screenwriter, you better do it well because it probably is better unanswered unless you nail it, yeah. you know? Agreed. But I think we've talked about how much we only have two experiences really in the film world in Rogue One and Solo. But so much of what they did in both of those films was class act retconning. Yeah. And I don't feel like most of that was plot hole filling. I think most of it in my mind was using these cool elements and these cool nuggets, as I said, from other films to make new ideas with enhance what we have it wasn't like trying to say well we know that this wasn't answered so we're going to answer it for you that's not the vibe i take away from those films and i think the most controversial retcon or the most controversial piece of like george lucas lore that people like to give him shit about the idea that he from day one knew that Darth Vader would be Luke's father Mm -hmm. and a lot of evidence suggesting that that wasn't the case people really like to talk about that But like I've said in previous episodes, I think what he had to do, the mental gymnastics that he had to do to make it work, actually developed this whole part of Jedi and Sith mythology and lore that made it so much richer. Like the idea that Darth Vader did kill Anakin Skywalker, Mm -hmm. like on a philosophical level, one person lived, was killed by another who continued on in the same body. They're the same person, but they're not. You know, so it made this, mm-hmm. it just expanded what a Jedi is, what a Sith is, all of this in a, a way that maybe he wouldn't have written if he hadn't painted himself into a corner like that. Yeah. It's a bit of retconning he did on his own, yeah. going back to the first chapter and going, okay, well, where do I go with this? Yeah. What do I use from this? And that, as you said, opened up the floodgates for all of it. So I think as a new screenwriter, whether you're Taika Waititi or Favreau or whoever's taking on these new scripts, it's like going back to that stuff is going to open the floodgates for you. By retconning these old stories, you're going to you're going to come up with the one idea that starts it like, okay, well, let's take Yoda. Well, look what that opened up into in The Mandalorian by taking that one concept. So I think to frown upon retconning, especially in sci-fi, is just kind of silly. Yeah, I think what we said, as long as it's done well, then it's a grand slam. All right, let's get into it. Off we go. Over a thousand generations. It is the dark side. Oh, gosh. It's a Kalikori. A Sith Wayfinder. Dark science. Cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. My first one, it's kind of just like a little introduction to Easter eggs and stuff. Maybe a little fan service-y. But uh, in The Mandalorian, the episode where uh, Din Djarin and... Uh, Baby Yoda meet Cara Dune in that kind of like bar scene. Baby Yoda gets a little snarl from a Lothcat, which is from Lothal in uh, Rebels. Nice. You have this animal, this creature that existed in Rebels and in animation. Dave Filoni obviously must have been the person to bring this into the fold in The Mandalorian. And they had a full-on CGI in live-action Lothcat, which was pretty cool. Just a couple of seconds on screen and all us nerds just pointed at the screen like the Leo meme, like, both cat. Right. <laughs> Cigarette and cocktail in hand. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a loath cat, like a little animatronic one in Galaxy's Edge in a cage in one of the yep. gift shops. Oh, Galaxy's Sweet. Edge. Sweet. Sleeping little cutie. Remember our friend Ashley Eckstein, who was on the show? 
Yep. She keeps posting pictures on her Instagram and her Instagram story of just her at Disney World here in Florida. So rude. You know, because she, she can just, like, call them and say, hey, I want to come to Disney World today. <laughs> I'm so mad at her. It's killing my soul a little bit. No. She invited me to go, to be honest. But I'm just still in quarantine. Yeah, but I'm in quarantine life, man, still. I just... I, Dude, put on a know? full Stormtrooper helmet, gloves, I got, I have, and just go. I have the parental units, man. You know, the high-risk age group, all yeah. that. I'm just trying to be careful. I'm in Florida, you know, you know, the red zone for those of you listening and following current events. Some people have gotten sick in Florida, (laughs) so I'm trying to be careful. Just a few, a few. All right, I'll go. So we've done, this is now 27 episodes of thank the maker. Can't tell you if all of the ones I retconned on my own have been said before, but I don't think it's a bad thing to rehash them. Because they're cool, and if you didn't listen to one of those episodes, you might be like, oh, I had no idea that was a thing. Also, totally missed the memo, and all of mine come from the original trilogy. I was not aware that we were free reign, full TV, films, everything. So mine are from the original trilogy. But Didn't you get the memo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, this may or may not have been displayed in a previous episode, but it's a quick little one that I think is very cool. The prison colony in Rogue One is called Wobani which is an anagram for Obi-Wan. Oh, uh, hell yeah. Uh, I like that. There's a lot of really cool stuff in Rogue One, but that that's one that you may not, I mean, obviously you're not going to hear it or see it on screen for the first time and go, oh yeah, if you take that apart and put it back together, it spells Obi-Wan. Right. But Wobani is an anagram for Obi-Wan. That's dope. I have a little one, another little one. I'm really kind of on a Phantom Menace kick right now from our, our last two episodes, writing and sequencing the films. So I have a few from Phantom Menace, actually. Right when the Boonta Eve classic, the pod race, is about to start, Jabba comes out, and he's got his crew, and he's got babes and servants and everything around him, and there's a girl to his left with blue hair who's wearing the slave bikini that Leia wears in Return of the Jedi. Uh-huh. What are we calling that now? The Hut Slayer. Yep. The Hut Slayer bikini. Yeah, with some, like, satin chaps or some shit. Are we thinking it's the same exact one? Because that kind of leads into my next Easter egg. Maybe. But do you think that it's the same bikini? I'm going to say it probably is, and that makes it even more messed up, because you know they didn't wash that shit. (laughs) So she left Tatooine with... Come on, man. With just, like, who knows what crawling up in her bits. Yeah. (laughs) But like I said, kind of, it goes into my number two, because I, I can't find whether or not it is the same exact skiff guard disguise. But in Solo, Tobias Beckett is wearing that skiff guard disguise that Lando wears in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. So there is a connection there, and I assume they're going for that connection that it was just on the Millennium Falcon at one point. Is it hanging in... It was stored there as a disguise. I I think Uh, it was just something Lando had on the ship as as a disguise, you know, uh because he was a smuggler. That's exactly how I interpreted it. I could be wrong, but when I saw Tobias wearing that, I assumed, oh, yeah, that's rad because... That's why Lando's wearing it in Jedi because yep. it's just it's it's on the ship. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's one of his probably many disguises he wears as he smuggles and scoundrels around the galaxy. Yeah. And or he has just like a trunk full of clothes from dudes he just whacked and tossed out the ship. <laughs> I mean, like Yeah. Get- he does like clothes. He likes clothes, so maybe that's the thing. Maybe he liked that horn tusk helmet mouth guard thing. Like, oh, it's a nice helmet. <laughs> You're going out the airlock, and that's going in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I realized after I said my first one that it was Rogue One and not original trilogy, but in my mind when I was looking for them, Obi-Wan is where that started, and to me, 
even though there are prequels, Obi-Wan is from the original. Emotionally, it's the original trilogy, too. Emotionally, Obi-Wan is connected to the original trilogy for me, so that's where I got that from. Uh, Another quick one for me, Luke's mechanical hand. You know, he takes a blaster injury to his hand in Return of the Jedi, and I remember the moment I saw it in The Last Jedi when he reached his hand out to take the lightsaber from Rey, and I just thought it was so badass that they, they just took the time to make sure that there was a little blaster pockmark on his right hand. and On the mechanic, like on the, the metal. It's on the plate, yeah. like the metal plate on the back of his hand right where it got shot in Jedi. So if you haven't noticed that before when you're watching The Last Jedi next time, when he reaches out to take the lightsaber from Rey, just notice that there's a blaster mark on his hand. That's dope. It's good attention to detail, for sure. Because you know what? If it wasn't there, people would have lost their damn minds. But it's there, so we could just move on. (laughs) Everyone could just rest easy. We didn't burn the internet down with that one. (laughs) I love thinking about the visual effects artist that rendered it that day and was like, dude, check this shit out. Yeah. You see on his hand? You know what that's from, right? Everyone in the room like, no way. (laughs) Oh, dude, you nailed it. You know. (laughs) Who's next, me? Yes, sir. Yes. Another quick one. It's well known that Keira Knightley played one of Padme's handmaidens in The Phantom Menace, and she has that little speaking moment, which I think Natalie Portman overdubbed, because I think all of the handmaidens are Natalie Portman's voice, if I'm not mistaken. What's up with Star Wars just taking people's voices away from them after they've been in a film? (laughs) George, sneaky bastard. But it's not as well known that Sofia Coppola is also one of the handmaidens in the background. Daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, and then... Oh, I did not know that. You know, now famous director. Connecting the bromance between Francis Ford and George. Deep bromance. So much bromance. And actually, so this is interesting. When he was writing, supposedly George would go to Coppola's kids and just, like, pitch them ideas. Just like, you think this is cool? What do you think? Like, just to get a kid opinion. And when they would say things like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Like, does he have, like, a lightsaber? You know, they would get excited, (laughs) you know, as kids do. Yeah. He would run with ideas like that since they were, you know, close family friends. That's awesome. So my third one, it's it's interesting to me because of how minor it is in the films, but then how expanded this ship is in Rebels. It's literally an entire animated series. But in the films, in Rogue One and in Rise of Skywalker, Harrison Dula's ship, the ghost is in like the one scene in Rise of Skywalker where there's a million ships, you could see the ghost. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then also in Rogue One when they're in the Battle of Scarif, you could see it. And then in the, I think towards the end of the movie, you could see Chopper with the droid is from uh, Rebels. And you could hear on the like PA system, them page Harrison Dula. So you kind of get the sense that all these animated series are running parallel and at the same time, but you really see how, small of an impact it has on the films though right because it's just like oh this character Hera one of the best animated characters alongside with Ahsoka and all this stuff and all she is in a movie is like oh there's her ship oh it's gone they just said her name oh it's gone right you know like really has like such small impact on the film which is kind of crazy but I think puts animation in perspective you know like the fact that we haven't seen Ahsoka like one of the most beloved characters hasn't even been in a film yet so it's all these animation things that it's great to watch and really does add to the overall universe but when it comes to their impact on the film they're like barely almost couldn't be in it any less that's essentially an easter egg seeing chopper like scoot by or just hearing Hera's name being called that's the most minor thing like that is the an essential easter egg nick you've talked about it 
and I go back to the episode where we had Charles and Heather from Marvel Comics on, and they talked about how the comics are really cool, but they can't really go all the way. You know, it's like yeah. they open up some cool storylines, and there's some great Easter eggs, but it's the idea of, like, the films are the thing. You know, mm-hmm. comic stories have been shut down because film and television, you know, is is developing, and they're like, sorry, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. And so it's like the animated series hold so much weight when you're watching the series, but having those little Easter eggs to connect them to the films is super cool because you know they're not going to bring all those characters into the films. The big impact that they do have, though, is expanding the universe. It's almost like it has an inverse effect because you see how important they are in their particular series, but they're insignificant maybe to the main story. And all that does to me is say that if they are this big of a deal here, then the galaxy must be that much more massive. Yeah. I was actually going to do a whole point i was just going to list all the ships that you can see in there because there are a ton oh yeah there's a lot of actually cool ships just all over the place in the prequels there's a bunch you can see a couple Corellian freighters that look sim- isn't there a millennium falcon cameo in the prequels there's for sure a falcon in three mm-hmm. pulling up to like um it's parked at a docking bay yeah, yeah i think it's like the senate dock maybe yeah you see it pull in like right at like five o'clock. Yeah. But then there's another spot where there are two that are shaped kind of like that, that are for sure Karelian ships. There's a like a space shuttle, a United States space shuttle in a <laughs> shot. All this kind of cool stuff. But that shot that Nick's referencing has everything in it. It's got the ship from Star Tours at Disneyland. It's got every ship from every like animated thing you can think of, including Resistance. Kaz, his name is said... I almost did a full thing on this because there's just a ton. Yeah. It, it, that is like the most densely populated Easter egg shot in all of Star Wars. Well, they had to have thought, I mean, when they came up with the idea for that, it was like, we're doing this because we can literally put every ship that's ever been in Star yeah. Wars in the last scene of Star Wars. I heard they were also super pumped. The concept artists were super pumped to just make up new ships because all their ideas that were like, eh, I don't know about that one for the main ship of this part. They're like, right. throw that shit in there. Yeah. It's <laughs> all in. There's a lot of ships yeah. in that scene. It's just people. My next one is a lot as well, and it takes a 4K viewing and a quick eye and a quick pause button thumb. All the flags outside Maz's place in The Force Awakens, there's a bunch of good shit in there. So many of those flags are from pod racers that we see in The Phantom Menace. We see a big dead center Mandalorian, what's the skull called? Mythosaur? Mythosaur skull. There you go. Right. We see Sebulba's symbol, a bunch of other racers whose names I don't know. There's this sort of wheat symbol from Boba Fett. There is another Mandalorian symbol that kind of looks like Sabine's helmet, Sabine from Rebels. The tattoo on Zero the Hut's belly, Zero the Hut from Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Another kind of, this is kind of like speculation, possibly another Mandalorian symbol. Altogether, 16 kind of pretty well identified symbols there. I'll put this link in the show notes. You can check it out. There's a bunch of great stuff all over that base. There's just, I mean, it's like a treasure trove of cool stuff. It's been a thousand years, you know. She's been chilling in that spot, so she's acquired some shit. (laughs) Okay, I'm going again. We talked about picking five things, and I called one in last minute. Some of these are just quick little tidbits, so I'll just, I'm going to do two real quick. First, and I thought of this just because I have them swinging from my rearview mirror in my car are the golden dice in the Falcon. Same. I definitely have them. hanging right grab here. Them at, we all three grabbed them at <laughs> Galaxy's Edge. We shall return to Batu someday, we hope. So that made me think of it, but just what a cool little 
thing to bring back, you know, in the sequel trilogy to me. And and obviously that was just a cool American graffiti kind of vibe that he threw into the Falcon by having the dice swinging from the rearview mirror kind of thing. And then to use them as such a major plot device in the sequel trilogy, I just think that right there, that's good retconning. That is a cool Easter egg. Even, even in The Force Awakens is when they, they first hang them back up, right? When, when Rey and Chewie get in the ship at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And if you weren't looking for that, though, you know, if, if, you're not the, if you're not on the nerd level that we're on, you're not in the theater going like, yes, yes, <laughs> when those dice, you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, that they're hanging dice up because that's what you have in your car is dice. You know, I get it. But yeah, I mean, I remember seeing them in The Force Awakens and then and then to have them carry on throughout the sequel trilogy as kind of a plot device, as I said, I think is super cool. So that that's rad. Um, and then one more, again, may have been mentioned on a previous episode, but worth re-mentioning because it's pretty big deal and I think it's a killer Easter egg is Red 5, Luke's call sign. Oh, yeah. Incredible retconning to me in Rogue One. Pedrin Gall, the pilot flying in the Battle of Scarif, who's just in it for a minute, and he just says, Red 5 checking in. I can't remember exactly the line, but it's something along the lines of Red 5 checking in, and he gets shot down. And this is not moments, but days prior to Mm -hmm. the Battle of Yavin, and that opens that call sign for Luke. And to do that in in backwards motion is so freaking cool. I never thought of that. Yeah, that's awesome. It opens up the spot. It's just a really cool bit of retconning, as we say. Because we, we've joked about, oh, yeah, we're going to let this farmer jump in a fighter plane. Yeah, and he's number five of all of us. Like, what yeah, do you, yeah. you know? <laughs> we're going to let him jump in a fighter plane and charge a battle station, which is funny still to this day. That will always be funny. But, like, he had a call sign and everything. Where did that come from? You know, that's just a, such a such a cool and tragic part of the story that they developed in Rogue One. They also, I don't know if you ever noticed... On the wings of the X-Wings have sort of like these uh, slashes or just bars, mm-hmm. red one through five, right? There's one, two, three, four, or five bars of red on the actual wings. So you imagine the shit that Luke was flying was probably like, oh, shit. Um, there's that one that needs a so-and-so replaced. We can put him in that one. Yeah. You fix that and just put another stripe on the wing. <laughs> He'll be red five because that's open now. You know what I mean? So you think about last minute, they're painting another thing on it. They're like replacing the alternator or whatever the hell was wrong with that X-Wing to get him in it. And then he becomes Red 5. And then to see in the Rise of Skywalker, Ray showing up, we hear Red 5 is in the air. The full circle goosebump overload in that moment. Yeah. Man. Poe's like, it's coming from Luke Skywalker's X-Wing. I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. All right. I love this one. I feel like I heard this years ago, but forgot and was reminded of it today when I was doing research. In The Phantom Menace, again, I'm on a Phantom Menace kick. To make Maul as menacing as possible, Lucas made sure that he never blinks on screen. Until the moment he's defeated by Obi-Wan. So the moment he's cut in half, you see the shock on his face. And then finally, he blinks right before falling down into the shaft in two pieces. Wow. Intense the whole time. Not a single blink till the end. Crazy. And it's like he just, like for a second, and blink. And then he's down. Hmm. That's nuts. It's pretty dope. It's pretty Lucas. Yeah, that one's lost on me a little bit. I never was like, look how menacing he is. He never blinks. <laughs> but he does look badass. You never question. Faster, oh, more intense. Yeah. <laughs> Don't blink. That's the first AD telling him that Lucas is just like, uh, make sure he doesn't blink on this next one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I do like kind of the callback and the rhyming of Ray seeing her dark side vision in the abandoned ruins of the Death Star and how that kind of rhymes with Luke seeing his dark side self when he goes into the Dagobah cave. Mm -hmm. So kind of thought that was a really cool callback because I think when you're really in the throes of figuring out what the force is to you when it comes down to Luke or Ray, you kind of are like jump ball for the dark side or the light side. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to see what your future would be if you chose the dark side. And at one point, Ray sees herself on the throne, on the Sith throne. And then later on in the movie, she is in the ruins of the Death Star and sees herself as dark Ray. And then ends up standing in front of that throne. Yep. Exactly. Do you think there's something to that that obviously is connected from what happened in Empire and it's hard or impossible to know what the thought process was behind the cave on Dagobah? But the idea that later on, again, to reference retconning, that we see the hole in the island, an octo that she falls into, and then the vault on the Death Star ruins, that... There are these places that can be charmed. For sure. You know, there are these places that can be, have sort of a spell cast on them. And I, if you have a problem with that, we're talking about a mythical galaxy where people can move shit with their minds. So don't at me. But you know what I mean? <laughs> that there are these. I mean, that's fully a part of the cartoons. They get deep into that stuff. So that's well established and accepted now. So, I mean, I just, yeah, I think that's so rad that as someone who hasn't watched all of the animated stuff to not know that, that I immediately when watching the rise of Skywalker thought uh, that, that chamber, you know, that room in the ruins was like people Sheev left it there like that. He was like, this room is all palps. And if you walk in here, it's some dark shit. Yeah. And it's just going to stay locked until another palps walks up to the door and can unlock it. Yeah. It's like face recognition or right. touch ID. Sith ID. By virtual DNA. I don't know. You know. It's like, I think that's so rad. All right. Again, throwing to original trilogy, as I did for most of these, Cell Block 1138. George Lucas's first film, student film from USC, THX 1138. Yep. Robert Duvall played the prisoner, and his number was THX 1138. There's actually some really cool references in a lot of... Star Wars, It's if you look it up, you can read. It's in the video almost games. Almost every movie. Yeah, it's in the video games. It's in almost every movie. I'm just going to reference the two from A New Hope that were just right away because I think that's cool because say there were no more Star Wars films after A New Hope, you know? He didn't know if there were going to be. And so writing and directing and, and producing that first film, throwing in these little Easter eggs for his student film project is so cool yeah. to me. So obviously the first one is Cell Block 1138 when Han and Luke bring Chewie up on the mission to rescue... Leia, they say, where are you taking this thing? And they answer, prisoner transfer from cell block 1138, which is clearly a reference to THX 1138. And then another one can be spotted in the hangar control room on the Death Star. When C-3PO asks what he and R2-D2 should do if they are discovered, the first line on the monitor just reads THX 1138. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. So there's just, he dropped them in A New Hope in a cool way, I think, to, you know, think about writing a record when you want to, like, do some cool concept shit and, like, try to tie this song together with that song. You know, it's just, it's a cool thing that he did. Can I add on to your item here? Of course. Make me smarter. We also have, there's a Return of the Jedi. Actually, it's not in the film, but in the Sideshow Collectibles release of the 1-6 scale figure of Princess Leia in the disguise. 
1138 is painted on the side of her helmet. I read that. Yeah, that's great. In The Phantom Menace, the first battle droid right in front of Jar Jar that deactivates after Anakin blows up the control ship, you can see on the back his number is 1138. Ah. In Clone Wars, I noticed this actually watching an episode called Clone Cadets. I don't remember what season this is, but they're training in that thing that looks like American Gladiators. It's this big training facility, and it's all just like a grid. It looks like American Gladiators from the 90s. Yep. The trooper who's running the thing says something like, um, initiate training program THX variable 1138, <laughs> Commander mm. Colt says. One of the main characters from this video game from the mid-2000s called Republic Commando had the designation RC1138, and there's some more stuff in the sequels too. There's just, I mean, it's all over the place. It's almost like the Wilhelm scream. It's in every damn movie. <laughs> Yeah. They work it in. Speaking of uh, things that are in every movie, I've got a bad feeling about this. Everyone knows that. But did you know that in The Last Jedi, do you know who says that? Do you guys know? I think we said this in the episode, isn't it? BB-8? Yep, it's BB-8. Nice. Of course, Ryan Johnson's got to really just throw a curveball and be like, oh, he ruined everything. He didn't even make it say, <laughs> I've got a bad feeling about this. It's like, no, actually, BB-8 said it. No, he's that. a better nerd than you. Yeah, <laughs> everybody chill out. So that one, I, that one I liked because that one I didn't even like. Didn't even occur to me that that phrase wasn't like uttered in the English language in that movie until I saw other people freaking out about it. I'm like, oh my god, who cares, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then of course he was like, no, actually, if you could tell by the response of Poe that that's what BB-8 said. BB-8 was the one right at the top of the movie that says, "I've got a bad feeling about." That's the best time to use "well," actually. <laughs> Just to go back, if you want to put this stuff in, the THX 1138 in the video games, you mentioned Republic Commando. In The Force Unleashed, which was just a miracle of a video game, Galen Merrick, who is the lead character, he's referred to as Subject 1138 during the escape from the Empirical. And in The Force Unleashed 2, the clearance code for docking the Salvation is Talus Haroon 10-11-38. The Thrawn trilogy novels feature an experimental bioweapon, that was identified as trihexalephine 1138. Nice. In issue number 68 of the Republic comic series. The Star Tours ride in the Disney theme parks is a bit more conspicuous. Star Tours Flight 1138 will bring you to Chandrilla. Spaceport THX 1138 is a Starliner terminal in the Earth system that was visited by a Star Tours speeder in the revamped ride. I'm getting all of this straight from StarWars.com, but <laughs> so cool. I feel like I noticed that. When we were there together, before the dark times. Whilst queuing for the ride, you might hear an attendant asking for the attention of the owner of a red and black land speeder with vehicle ID THX-1138. Yes. it's parked in a no-hover area. <laughs> I did hear that. That's, That's great. That's so cool, dude. Next level nerd shit. Circle back to the beginning of this conversation. I just I love <laughs> being a nerd. It's so much more fun. And I want to being... go to Disney World so bad. Yeah. <sighs> it's, only thing I wanted to do for my 40th birthday was be in Batu from like opening to closing. You know what, when, even if it's not until you're 44 that we can do it again, <laughs> we're going to celebrate your 40th in Batu in 2024, if that's what I feel takes. like if Disney's not open for another four years, we probably could like start a GoFundMe to just buy the Millennium Falcon that's sitting there. <laughs> they're going to need to sell everything. <laughs> just, just do the podcast from that. I love yeah. it. We'll put it in a field in Arkansas or some weird shit. We, we just, the three of us can, we can just right. live in it. Just right. bring your wives and friends and we just live there. I'm in. All right. This is my last one. I think we have mentioned this before on an episode, but I, I went a little bit deeper than we had as far as a couple of other little references to it. But the number 2187, 
Finn FN2187. That is an Easter egg from A New Hope because Leia's cell in A New Hope is cell number 2187. And you'd think, oh, well, that's where that came from. However, check this out. There was a Canadian short film released in the 60s called 21-87 by a filmmaker named Arthur Lipset. And the film was just a collage of footage from the editing room of the National Film Board in Canada. But Lucas loved it, apparently. And it was something that inspired him to start making his own, like, short films all the way back in the 60s. So this film 2187 is where Cell 2187 came from in A New Hope. And then check this out. 21 minus 87 is negative 66. Ah. Order 66. Nice. I almost talked about this one as one of mine. It's just so sweet that it could, I mean, like everything with Lucas, he's just a nerd like us. Yeah, yeah. What I think is cool about the last little factoid is that it's not 81 minus 27. He took the name of the film is 21 87, 21 minus 87, and that equals negative 66. Like, you know, killing them. Like, that's yeah, the yeah. idea behind Order 66. I don't know how deep that goes, but. It works out in my mind that that's part of his thought process, and it's really cool to me. He also, talking about influence from that, that's definitely the style that influenced THX 1138, which was much more experimental, Mm -hmm. much less story, much less, there was no character arc, there was no hero's journey. It was just this kind of like pure cinema kind of thing that was going on at the time. A lot of imagery just meant to kind of evoke emotions, and that's where Lucas started. He right. wasn't a storyteller in the beginning. He's about imagery. And has to be what he got out of that Lipset dude's short film. Was it was imagery. Yeah. That's what I researched. He made like a student film and then an, a different version later, right? Yes. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. He made one at USC and then he made an actual studio feature film mm. of it as well. Which bombed and the studio was like, what is this shit? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, oh, this kid's really talented. Maybe he'll make a great story. And then he just made a longer weird thing. <laughs> Which is still cool. I watched it 20 years ago, and I thought it was pretty sick. But I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a long time. But It's not something you put on like, yo, mom, let's watch this while I'm here for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 1984. You know, it's like Clockwork Orange with less dialogue. <laughs> I don't know. And less plot. And yeah, yeah. As if you could have less plot than a Clockwork Orange. Yeah. All right, here's my last one, and this is another list. So it's now, as of recently... We've come to know that Mark Hamill is in every Star Wars film aside from the three prequels. So he does some voice acting. He apparently also has done motion capture stuff. He's been in all the others, some of which we know and others. He's playing this game with us, really. Hmm. He's like, I'm in all of them. Figure it out. So he uses the pseudonym either Patrick Williams or William M. Patrick made from his two brothers' names, the M. We don't know if that's for Mark or or if that's for, I think his wife's name has an M in it. William Ryan Key. Yeah. (laughs) Billy Bill Bill. (laughs) Bill Bill Billy. So Mando chapter five, he does the voice of the cantina bartender, the droid. Sick. EV99. The one who has kind of a voice like this. Mm -hmm. He does that voice. In The Force Awakens, we don't know yet. There's speculation that He's credited as Patrick Correll because there, there's a whole section of additional voices by these people, right? Right. There's a lot of speculation as to who he voiced, but we don't know for sure. We do know, however, in The Last Jedi, Dobu Ske, this little drunk alien with the monocle on Canto Bite who tries to put the coins in BB-8. Yep. 
supposedly, Mark Hamill said this in a tweet, he says, quote, it's commonly and mistakenly reported that I only did the voice of Dobuske, but I filmed a scene in a full motion capture suit with a giant sized medicine ball to make me look the same size as BB-8. <laughs> he so might great. just be with us. But it goes back to that whole, like, you know, he always used to be in the creature shop when he wasn't, like, on set and stuff like that. Like, he probably just likes playing. Yeah. Nonetheless, he did the voice, so he's there. In The Rise of Skywalker, he is the voice of Bulio, the dude with the horns, when they go to get the, the files. What is it? What are they picking up from him? Win the war. Win the war. Yeah, that guy, he does that voice. They're getting the information on... The mole. Who the mole is, On right? Hux. They're getting information yeah. on Hux, right? Yeah. On who the spy in the First Order is. That's right. And then he ends up getting killed. Kylo throws his head on the table. It's uncomfortable for everybody. He was in Solo. William M. Patrick is credited. He hasn't confirmed who he voiced. Maybe not even a voice. Maybe he was in a costume. Supposedly, he was one of the Cloud Riders with Enifus Nest, oh. which would be so sick if he was actually in costume there. I would love that. He was in Rogue One as William M. Patrick, possibly over the intercom in the Yavin base, possibly also the voice if you can call it a voice, of Boar Gullet. Ooh. Wow. Which is pretty dope. Lastly, I, this is my favorite. He's in the Clone Wars Season 6 finale as the voice of Darth Bane. He's great. I'm learning a lot right now. He's, he's awesome. the biggest Star Wars fan there is, and, <laughs> uh, and we know he's a wicked talented voice actor. You know, that was his post-original trilogy career developed into voice acting. I mean, his Batman, the animated series, dude, uh, I don't know if you guys watched any of that back in the day or if you've ever watched it but a little bit yeah he absolutely rips as the joker he was going to cons i think as much as the voice of the joker as he was yeah. luke skywalker it was a big deal for him so i think his voice acting career was i'd have to i don't i don't know enough about other stuff he's done but just hearing everything adam just listed i'm sure the list is long and distinguished <laughs> yeah mark hamill he's a damn hero he is. Future guest of the podcast. Yep. Just keep liking my tweets, Mark. Just keep liking them, and then we're going to get there. We'll make a deal. You could do the whole podcast with the voice of the Joker. You could do the whole podcast with the voice of Borgullet. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you could do the whole podcast as fart sounds, and we'll put a translation. You could just sit in the screen on Zoom in a motion cap suit with a beach ball to look like BB-8 and not even talk. <laughs> That'll do, pig. I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Come on, let's go. Welcome. What do you guys got? Welcome. What's in the bag? Okay, my entry, my discovery at Toshi Station. I'm sure there are lots of you out there that can relate to this, that in these strange times when we stay at home a lot, or if you're someone that does stay at home a lot, which I do because I'm... If you're a smart person. I'm trying to be responsible. I mean, I don't want to contract this virus, but I also want to protect my parents. And I live close to my parents and I see them a lot and it's important to me. So I stay home a lot. So one of my only social hangs is nightly drop-ins in the war zone, Call of Duty. So I know that many of you out there are doing that because it's pretty much like the most popular video game that's <laughs> ever existed at this point. I mean, it's crazy to, to think about how worldwide it is and the millions of people that are playing it. That said, I recently got a new headset and I got the Astro A50 headset for Xbox. I am not like a serious gamer. I'm not that good. I'm just on record. I'm not. However, this headset is like... I would equate it to like when we went and did the VR experience 
at Disneyland, how it just like oh, yeah. everything was in 360 around your head and it felt like you were inside of the game you were in. Right. They're like Dolby surround and the clarity of these headphones. They're kind of expensive for a headset. But if you play a lot and you're into it and it's something you can do, highly, highly recommend this. Astro is the brand and A50 is the model. They make them for PS4 and Xbox PC. They're individual models depending on what your system is. But I had a pair of Razer Kraken headphones before that were good and highly reviewed and they were cool. And granted, they were a third of the price, but still they were cool. I had no idea until I put these headphones on that there's like actually a difference. <laughs> it's actually really improves my game. Not a lot. Again, I suck at the game, but I've gone from like a low level of sucking to like a mid level of sucking. Like I'm, I'm slowly <laughs> creeping out of my suck and I think the headphones are helping. They're so sick. So if you're a gamer and... Got a little dough to spend on some new headphones. The Astro A50s, they're amazing. Young Nicky. I haven't really explained or gotten to talk about hockey on our Star Wars podcast, but just love hockey. I've always loved hockey. It's probably like my second love after Star Wars. And actually my second love and music was my third love. So like hockey's <laughs> been like my whole life. And they figured out a way to actually play right now. And it seems super safe. They're up in Canada where the cases are super low. All the players made it to the bubble, COVID free. And as of right this second, my team, the New York Rangers just got swept. So hey, hey. it's not a good birthday gift for me, but I'm just really happy that hockey's back. Even though it looks like a video game because there's no fans and they have the seats completely covered. It literally looks like a video game. It's so weird. It's so weird, but like, it's kind of sad to say like the smallest slice of normalcy right now feels so good. Yep. Like on Saturday, because there's two hubs, Toronto and Edmonton, because the Rangers were in the Toronto hub, their game was at 9 a.m. West Coast time. So I literally woke up and spent 13 hours watching hockey on Saturday. It's the happiest I've been since like middle of March. I love that for you. Is a morning hockey game not normal? Uh, not that early for the, it's definitely all hockey's usually the earliest would be new. I would say 11 East coast time. Yeah. So living on the East coast, there was plenty of weekend 11 or noon games, but then you have to do the whole time zone thing and a 9am hockey game. I think it's pretty sick. I like legitimately woke up at like 8.15, ate some breakfast and just like laid in bed and watched hockey. And then it was on for 13 hours because each rink has like three or four games a day. So they stagger the schedules and just like one game ends, another one starts. One game ends, another one starts. It's been, although it looks weird, it's had a little slice of normalcy to it and a little bit of distraction. And I don't know what it means for next season because right now the Stanley Cup seems like it'll be rewarded like anywhere between end of September and mid-October. I'm just glad to have it back. Which is usually when the season starts, right? Yeah, we're looking at maybe a January start to the season, but I don't know how you do the season. The only reason the playoffs work right now is because they're in bubbles. I think they you would know? cut like, the games back next yeah. year is what they would Which, do. There would be less games in the regular season. Yeah, they'd have to do something because at that point, I think you'd have to travel, you know, like you couldn't do full seasons in a bubble like this. This only works because it's the playoffs right now. Right. I'm so not a sports guy, but I love hockey. You could have made up any number of games, <laughs> any schedule. You could say that they play 14 of the games after midnight and it only goes between October and January and then they have a bonfire and then they do seven <laughs> more games with only women fans at an abandoned Best Buy and I'd be like, oh, cool, that's how sports work? I have no idea. <sighs> oh, you're bored with our sports jock talk? <laughs> yeah, yes, I yes. mean, I'm, yes, yes. I think, yes. <laughs> 
I'm going to round out the Tashi Station with Star Wars. Not, not hockey and football? <laughs> the robot football in episode two in the bar. No. <laughs> There's something that I discovered a couple of years ago that I think is so brilliant. And it got a lot of attention. It has a million views on YouTube, but it deserves like 10 times that at least. There's a dude named, his YouTube handle is Palette Swap Ninja. I don't know what that means, but he rewrote the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, the full thing, and in it told the story of A New Hope. Oh, wow. Completely re-recorded all of the instruments and did a great job, not a bad mix, and rewrote all the lyrics, sang the whole thing, and it's called Princess Leia's Stolen Death Star Plans. (laughs) Wow. It's so good. Like, we'll, of course, put it in the show notes. Like, the lyrics are so clever. He didn't just slap some shit on there. He put some real time into it. And it's phenomenal. You obviously can't get it on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Music or anything because that would be an ordeal for him, (laughs) (laughs) copyright-wise. But you can go to YouTube and check it out. And it's great, especially if you're a Beatles fan. They're probably my favorite band of all time. You know, I have Metallica and No Doubt and Outkast and like my few, but I grew up on the Beatles. I grew up on Sgt. Pepper. So this is just like the perfect intersection for me and it's brilliant. Check it out. Stoked to listen. If you want to check out the podcast on social media, we're on Instagram at ThankTheMakerPod, Twitter at ThankTheMaker1. My personals are all at Adam the Skull. My webs are at William Ryan Key. It's my damn birthday, and if you don't follow me on Instagram, nothing at all will happen. <laughs> follow those social meds. The social meds. Twitter and Instagram are at Nick Bayside. Follow Nick. Tell him happy birthday. And if you don't, we're going to order 66 your ass. <laughs> but if you do, you might also be the kind of person who might back us on Patreon. And to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash thankthemakerpod. It really, really does genuinely help us do this because we put a lot of time into it. And every little dollar counts, making this thing more than just a hobby that takes up too much of our time. We're just waiting for our vaccine so we can hit those cons. Help us out. <laughs> so thanks for listening. And until next time, may the force be with you. It was many years ago. Just